1549, the rabbinical court in Cairo held hearings and engaged in extensive research to learn about the source of the annual flooding of the Nile River. The rabbis of the day found themselves on different sides of this scientific question, and they defended their respective positions. But why did they care about this question? That is the subject of today's shear. In the year 1549, in Egypt, there was some sort of ceremony, some sort of uh, proceedings that took place in the Beisden. Presiding over the Beisden in 1549 in Egypt was a Radvaz, known by the name of Reb David ben Zimra. Reb David ben Zimra grew up, or was born at least in Spain, and he was part of the expulsion of Spain in 1492. And like many Jews, he made his way to the Middle East, and he settled uh, for a very long time. He lived in Mitzrayim. Ultimately, he ended his life in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel. So what happens is that in 1549, his court is presiding over proceedings, and there's Eidos, there is a, someone who comes along and who offers testimony. The Eidos is as follows. Let's read number one. Kabalnu Eidos we received Eidos from a man named Yitzchak al-Chabashi. Chavash is the Hebrew word that's used in this time period to describe Ethiopia. Yitzchak al-Chabashi means Reb Yitzchak from Ethiopia. We have other chuvas from the Radvaz at this time, where he writes about, in his language, he calls them Yehudim Hadarim Be'eretz Kush, the Jews who live in Ethiopia. And he discusses their status. And by the way, this is a very uh, famous tshuva when it comes to talking about uh, um, the, the, the Beta Yisrael community from Ethiopia. So it seems that this Rabbi Yitzchak al-Chavashi is a, from this Beta Yisrael community in Ethiopia. And he now is in Egypt and he's giving Eidos. What does he say? And this is the affidavit reads as follows. Bamois of Tlasa. So here you have the standard language, it's three judges, they were sitting, and then etc. Kishabar Reb Yitzchak, and here Reb Yitzchak came, etc. Veheyid, and he gave the following testimony. What did he say? When did he come from Ethiopia? He was 15 years old when he came from Ethiopia to Egypt. And in Ethiopia he lived at the Nile River. We know the Nile River as being the river of Egypt. But it originates in uh, further south in Africa. And so he lived on the Nile River. And he said, Rabbi Yitzchak says, When is the beginning of the rain season in Ethiopia? In Nisan. Now the reason that's important and this is noteworthy is because if you're living in Mitzrayim or in Eretz Yisrael, when is the beginning of the rain season? And when does it end? In other, Nisan is already no more rain anymore. But there it's different, so it's unusual, so that's why it's being noted. The beginning of the rain season is in Nisan, Vechaskam, and the strongest point of the, of the rain is Betamuz Va'av, which again, very different if you were living in Egypt in the land of Israel. Okay. And due to the abundance of rain that falls at that time, all of the people in Ethiopia stay in their cities. They can't go from one city to another city. Because there are so many streams and rivers, so much water flooding all over the place that you can't travel in Ethiopia during the rainy season. 
Okay. The Hayid. And he went on to give further testimony and said, Shatoisefes Hanar Asher Poi Mitzrayim, that the adding, the, 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 the floodings that happen here in Egypt, um, where does that come from? So first, what's, what, what, what are we referring to? The Nile River, what's unique about the Nilus is what Chazal sometimes called the Nibul Shel Nilus, Nibul Melash Mabel, the flooding of the Nilus. Every year, we'll see more of the timing soon, the Nile would rise. There is no rain in Mitzrayim. The Nile would rise. And it would flood a vast area. And this is how the agricultural life of Egypt was sustainable. And so that's what he's referring to. And he's saying, you want to know where this inundation of the, of, of the Nile comes from? You should know that this comes from the abundance of rain in Ethiopia. Because in the time when there is no rain in Ethiopia, then the river is very small. But when you have a lot of rain in Ethiopia, uh, the river rises a lot. And it rushes forth toward Egypt. And this is the addition, the adding, the inundation, the flooding that happens to the Nile every single year. This is the source. I should point out that today, Egypt doesn't uh, have this anymore. And that's because around 1970, they built a big dam that's called the Aswan Dam. And as a result of that, this doesn't happen. But for most of history, until very recently, this was an annual occurrence in Egypt. So all of this is the edos that Reb Yitzchak from Ethiopia is giving, and he's like, he's one to know. Why is he one to know? Because he comes from Ethiopia. He was there, and he's here, and so he knows, and he's giving edos about this in Ethiopia. And we got another witness, and this is from a Jew who was born in Egypt, who says he traveled, and here is the language of the affidavit of this, uh, of this edos. And then it gives the date. When did they receive this second Eidos? It was Yom Vav. This is how it appears in the print. Tesvav Yom L'Chaydash Tishrei, the 15th of Tishrei. That obviously is an error. They're not going to be taking uh, Eidos on the first day of Sukkot. But uh, something, uh, whatever, there's uh, some, some sort of typo over there. Shnas Hei Shin Tes. Hei Shin Tes is year 13, excuse me, 1549. Poi Mitzrayim. This is... One of the chuvas, where am I getting this from? One of the chuvas of the Radvads, or David Ben Zimra, in volume 8, which is the most recently published uh, volume of his chuvas. There were recent, the last few decades that were printed, meaning there was chuvas of the Radvads printed many uh, centuries ago, but this was printed recently a few decades ago. And you have this Gvias Eidos in one of his chuvas, you have this affidavit in one of his chuvas. And I hope this strikes you as odd, because why do you have a court in Egypt in the year 1549 collecting testimony from a traveler and from someone from Ethiopia about exactly where the Nile uh, originates from and how the rain patterns are working and, we, and, and, and why the flooding is, is surfacing here. Um, uh, but this is obviously interesting and we're going to see exactly why this is occurring. The Radvaz in this chuva goes on to quote additional sources all on the same thing, trying to figure out what is the science behind this Nile River. So he throws in a line in this tshuva that says as follows, Gam Reb Binyamin Bal Hamasois, also Reb Binyamin, the traveler, Hayid, he also testified, Shanilus Misrabe, that the inundation of the Nile is Mimek Shamim comes from rainwater. 
Who is he referring to here? He's referring to, as follows, one of very, very interesting work that's very important for Jewish history. There was a Jew who lived in sometime in the 1100s, and around the year 1165, he went on a big travel to see the world, and he wrote a travelogue. The idea being that this will be interesting for people to read. And indeed, it was a bestseller. This was a very, very popular work. First in the manuscript age, this was read very widely. And it was printed for the first time in 1543, which is a few years before this whole event occurred. Perhaps even Radvaz had a copy of the printed edition. If not, then he had a copy of a manuscript. Who's this person? His name was Binyam. And he was from Tudela. Tudela today is a city in Spain. It's a region in Spain. It's in a region called Navarre. Sometimes it was part of Spain, sometimes it wasn't part of Spain. Anyway, there was a Jewish community there. He grew up over there. And sometime in the 1100s, around the year 1165, he goes on this huge travel. He goes to many, many different places. And it's very interesting to learn and to read what he writes about the diff different Jewish communities around the world. So let's see. Radvaz is telling you us, read that travelogue to see what he says about the Nile. Why? Because he showed up in Egypt. Let's re read what he wrote. This is from one of the printings of this work in 1907. So it says as follows. The, the, the Nile rises once a year in the month of Elul. This is actually not so exact. We know from other sources, the Radvaz himself, who tells us that in fact the, the rising of the Nile would begin in Tammuz and the, it would till Tishrei, and then after Tishrei it would go down. Okay, but Elul is right in the middle uh, at that period of time. It covers the whole land. And it provides the water necessary for agriculture 15 days uh, 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 distance. The, the water remains on the surface. Uh, that is true, we, we, as I mentioned before, Advaz tells us that this period ended in Tishrei Cheshven, it started going down. And this sustains the agriculture. If you own a field, he's describing, you're going to make a nice big ditch in your field, and then the fish, uh, because the water is there, the fish enter these, uh, uh, these uh, cavities. When the water starts pulling back, the fish remain. And the field owners take these and they consume the fish and they sell it. Uh, in other words, he's just giving you one of the descriptions of one of the physical benefits of having the floodings of the Nile. Now, Rabbi Yamin continues and says, and everyone asks, why does the Nile rise, and the people in Egypt say, he's like, I don't know, but I can tell you what they say. That up there, the Eretz al-Chavash, that's the same term in Ethiopia, and he's calling it up there. Why is he referring to up there? Ethiopia is a very, very high altitude. Very high. One of the highest on earth. Egypt is very low, relatively speaking. So therefore, it's Lamayla. So Lamayla, Eretz al-Chavash. In Ethiopia, there's a lot of rainfall. While at the same time that the Nile is rising, and due to that water, and that is why the Nile rises. And so therefore, uh, not only do we have two witnesses from today in the 16th century saying this, Rev, uh, Radvaz says, I have a source from the 1100s who tells us that this is what was widely believed at the time. Okay, the Radvaz says, this is not enough. I'm going to bring you more sources to prove where the rising of the Nile is coming from. Number four, he says, they're the sages, when he says it means the non-Jewish scientists. The and all of them agreed. You want to know why we have this yearly rise of the Nile? 
It's because of the rain. Okay, so I asked the scientist, but he went further. I checked up their books on my own. And in their books it says, The reason for the rides is from rain or from the melting of snow. I also saw in the secular books that it says as follows, that some of the earlier kings sent messengers to find out what is the Nile and where does it originate from? And the answer came back, Jabal al, it says Qatar, but it needs to be Kamar. Jabal al Kamar. Jabal means the moon, excuse me. Uh, Jabal al Kamar. Jabal al Kamar. Jabal means a mountain, and al Kamar means the moon. So the mountain of the moon. The Hainu Har Alavana. So it comes out of what's known as the moon mountain. And it continues to flow, the river does, because of the abundance of rain. This is a reference to. We know what this is. This is a reference to one of the, the, the philosophers, scientists who lived in the second century of the common era. His name was Ptolemy. And Ptolemy has a work that survives to this day. And he writes over there that he heard that there is in Ethiopia, there is this mountain range. And it's called the moon mountain. The reason it's called moon because it's white, snow-capped. And so therefore, snow-capped looks like the moon. And so, and, and there, there's abundance of rain. And that's where the Nile originates from, and because of the rain, that the abundance of rain that happens in a unique time of the year, that's why the Nile rises every single year. Yeah, so that the I, moon is high tide, like exactly what we think. No, no discussion about the tides, and the tides aren't going to really play a role in this. We'll come. We'll circle back to. It. So what do you have here? So the Radvaz is collecting testimony in his day. He's giving you Reb Binyamin the traveler. Now we see he's going to the, the, the scientists of his day and he's making his own investigation in the scientific works that were available to him at that time. One more source where we see the Radvaz is going ahead to do this. Another source of testimony is Harav Evan Ezra. We're going to go to the biblical commentator. Avram Evan Ezra, that's Hanogid Kvoid Harav Nosen Shaloel Zav. Also, the Nogid. The Nogid, a moment on this, in Mitzrayim, like in times of the Rambam, and for multiple centuries thereafter, there was an official position that was called the Nogid. And the Nogid was the person who was the leader of the Jewish community. He represented the Jews to the secular, to the non Jewish authorities, to the, at, at the time, was Islamic authorities. And this was a very prestigious and important position. And so there was one, a, a Nagid, called Nasin Shalol Zal. And he was Mechaber Pirisha Torah. Karashmai, he called his commentary Keser Torah. And he, Nasin does, quotes in the name of Evan Ezra the following. In other words, we don't have this quote from Evan Ezra. We don't have the Sefer. Kesar Torah, because it didn't survive to this day, at least as far as I know, it didn't survive. But Radvaz quotes for us one passage. What does he say over here? I'll summarize what he says in this passage outside. He says as follows. There is the account in Sefer Bereshis where it talks about the four rivers that originate in Gan Eden. And one of those rivers is known as Pishon. And there's a discussion and there are some sources that say, and Rashi al Torah actually says that Pishon is the Nilus. Says... Nasin Shalom, the name of Evan Ezra, I don't think it's the Nilus. Pishon and the Nilus are two separate things that are not connected with each other. Why? He says, the four rivers, that's in Gan Eden. In Gan Eden, he says, where's the physical location of, of, of Gan Eden? That's at the equator. Where the time of day and the night is equals 12 hours, 12 hours all year. That's the area where you have to look for Gan Eden. You need to look over there. Whereas the Nilus, 
The Nilus is way, it originates way south from the equator. And here he says, because where does the Nilus start? He says, there are mountains that are called Har Halavana, that are called moon mountains, and they're in Ethiopia. And that, he says, it's south of the equator. And the, the, they flood, the reason the Nile floods every year is because of the extra rain, the abundance of rain that happens in the summer during those months uh, in Ethiopia at that time. And that is why the Nilus rises. And so therefore the Nilus is one thing, Nahar Pishain is another thing, and the two things are two separate things. The bottom line is for Advaz, looking at this, what do you have? You have Evan Ezra, and you have Nassim Shaloyal quoting the Evan Ezra, basically saying the origins of the flooding of the Nile comes from rain every single summer. And the question that I asked before is all the more pronounced right now. Why in the world does it matter for a Rav and for a rabbi and for a basin and for a community to figure out what the origins of the Nile River are? So the truth is, it was a debate. There were people who disagreed. Who disagreed? So in the tshuva the Radvaz brings, he brings two rabbis. One was named Chacham Avram and one was named Chacham Yitzchak. And they lived at that time in Mitzrayim. And they said, no, you're wrong, Radvaz. This is not the origin of the flooding of the Nile. It has nothing to do with rain in Ethiopia. That's not where it comes from. Why? Well, they brought rayas. So first, let's look at the rayas. The Pasuk says in Dvar in Perak Yud Aleph, it says as follows. When you're coming to Eretz Yisrael, it's not like Mitzrayim. Because in Mitzrayim, you didn't have rain. Whereas in Eretz Yisrael, you will drink water from rain. The land of Israel drinks water from rain. Now, if the Radvaz is right, that the flooding of the Nile happens from what? Happens from rainwater. So then is there really a difference between Egypt and Israel? It's kind of the same. This is rain and that's rain. So this is evidence, they say, that no, the flooding of the Nile, nothing of the Nile, not the regular Nile, and not the flooding of the Nile has anything to do with rain. Now, I ask you, is this the strongest proof in the world? I don't think anyone will say this is the strongest proof in the world. In fact, you could say no. The answer is, on a very practical level, you can respond and say, yes, Egypt's flooding of the Nile comes from, rain, comes from rainwater in Ethiopia, but in Egypt, there is no rain. In Egypt, you don't experience any rain. At the end of the day, where do you get the water from to water the field? It comes from the Nile. It doesn't come from heaven. So you, there's an easy way to get out of this, and, and, uh, but this is one of the pieces of evidence that they brought. Then they brought a medrash. The medrash says as follows. In the beginning of creation, in, the, in, in Sefer Bereshis, the Pasuk says there was no rain yet. Uh, there was the beginning, I don't remember the Lashon Pasuk, but it says there was no rain yet. And the, the, the Medrash says, the Medrash says as follows, So in the beginning when there was no rain, how did the, how did, uh, the fields operate? How did we have water? So there's different shittas, but they quoted Rabbi Yehuda. So it's similar to the Nilus. Now what happened? That the Nilus, there is no rain, and nonetheless it rises and waters all the fields. So, so too, before there was rain in the beginning of time, and rather than having rain, you had the water, the seas, the oceans, the lakes, the rivers would rise, and that would water everything. And then God changed the system. That, instead of it coming from below, from flooding, instead it would come from above, it would come from rain. So they said, Look over here. You see that it used to be the system was coming up from the bottom, and now the system changed in a way where there was rain. Now, in the beginning of time, in the beginning of time, there was no rain. It's very clear that there was no rain. And still it's saying, so what, what was the model then? The model then was no rain, 
and the rising of the, of the bodies of water. So it, and, and it's saying that that's what the Nilus is. And so therefore we should look at the Nilus today and say it's the rising of the Nilus without any rain. Okay, is this an, a, a compelling argument? I think if you thought for a few minutes, you could also come with a way of saying that it's not a persuasive argument. Indeed, Radvaz does that in his chuba. But I want to just show you what their argument was. Next, they gave another argument. This is more like a philosophical argument. Look what they wrote. Here's Radvaz quoting their argument. Here they have a problem, theological problem. If Radvaz is right, that the reason the flooding of the Nile happens is because of the rain that happens further south in Ethiopia. So it turns out that Egypt's economy is really dependent on what happens in Ethiopia. But then, in Kilkulum what happens if the Ethiopians are no good and Hashem decides that he wants to bring a drought into Ethiopia? That's not fear. That's going to mean that the people in Egypt are going to suffer. And so, therefore, that makes no sense, Radvaz. Rather, it makes more sense to look at the source of the flooding of the Nile independently within Egypt rather than in another country. Okay, is this a compelling argument? Radvaz says he doesn't understand this argument. What type of argument? He says, you think God can't figure it out? God can't do it this way. He can come up with another hundred ways of figuring. He can give too much. He says, he can give too much rain over there. There it would be bad. Here it would be good. Or he could bring something else. The whole conversation is a little bit of a non-starter, the Radvaz says. Okay, Va'oid. They brought another argument. What's the other argument that they brought? These people living in Egypt, they saw the rising of the Nile every single year. Every single year. They also know that rain is inconsistent, right? What do we know? Especially when you read sources from Eretz Yisrael about rain, one of the uh, major takeaways about rain, especially from sources in Eretz Yisrael, is this is very inconsistent. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, we don't know, on and off. Here, they're growing up in Egypt, and they see every single year the Nile rising. Rain to them is not, is not that consistent. So they said, You're telling me the Ethiopians never had a drought? Because this Nile rises every single year. Okay, so they're advising his chuvas. He responds and says, Check your history books. There actually have been times the Nile didn't rise. And why didn't it rise? Because there was a drought in Ethiopia. Okay, but you see the discussion that's happening here. Then here's the last point, the last raya that we're going to bring that they said at that time. I'm talking about Rebbe Avram and Rebbe Yitzchak. The two, additionally, yeah, same time. The two, additionally, the shoiklin titanar. The Egyptians have this ritual, this procedure, where they take some of the mud that, that lies at the riverbed, Balaila Yodua, on a certain night, Hanikra, which is known as Leil Hanokta. Leil Hanukta. It's a certain night, I wasn't able to figure out exactly what this is, where they would take this mud, and then there was some sort of procedure observing how much additional weight ended up in this dirt that night. And that was a portend for what would happen to the Nilus the coming year. I don't know exactly what they were doing here. But they were doing some sort of testing on the soil, on the mud of the Nile. And based on that, it's like Groundhog Day, similar to the kind of Groundhog Day. It's going to tell you how long the winter is going to be. So this was the Egyptian ancient uh, way of doing their Groundhog Day, where they would take this mud and they, this would tell them how much flooding is going to happen in the... In, now, would mud in the Nile know about rain in Ethiopia? No, he, does, he doesn't have that information. Would he know if, it's the, if the information is embedded within the Nile? Oh, yeah, maybe. That makes sense then. They don't have that information. So therefore, this is a raya that the flooding of the Nile originates here 
in the in the location where this mud is sitting, that's where it comes from. Mashmashum is barech nesiloi umekoiroi. It comes from the source hasharusam betivoi, which is right here by its very nature in this mud. Beloi mi meig shamim anaf from rain. What was their model? Their model essentially said that whatever underground source you have for the for the Nile, that is also the springs that you have underground springs and underground water aqueducts. That is the answer for the Nile, and that is the answer for the flooding of the Nile. It's right here, and that's why the dirt that's positioned on it somehow has in its DNA, it has the answers uh, to those uh, types of questions. So Radvaz obviously was not impressed by this argument, and he said, I'm not obligated to believe this, and every year, they, uh, many years, they get it wrong, and it's not a good test, Bechlal, and so therefore, to bring this into the courtroom to figure out right from wrong, uh, this is not going to be acceptable. Okay. So now, we have the Radvaz pushing in one direction. We have Rabbi Avraham and Yibiskov pushing. There's a whole big debate in the Jewish community in 1549 in Egypt about where, what is the source of the flooding of the Nile. And the question is, what is the difference? Who cares what is the source of the Nile? So the answer is as follows. Here we need to learn a little bit about the dinim of Meklois. You have the Pasuk says in Parsha Shmini, Ach mayon ubar mikvei mayon. These are the words that the Torah uses in Parsha Shmini, and it's telling a Yia Tar, and Chazal learned that Pasuk to mean that a Mayon can make something Tar, and also a Bar Mikvei Mayon. What's a Mayon? A Mayon is a spring. That's water coming from an underground source, an underground aqueduct, where water is flowing, and this is called a Mayon. This is a, this is a immersion can happen in a Mayon, and it, something can go from Tumat to Tara in a Mayon. This, that's one way. What's the second way? A Bar, a pit, Mikveh, gathering of mime, a pit of gathering of water. This also is a way of yiatar where we can create tara. What's the difference between the two? So Chazal taught us, and here we'll learn it summarized in the Rambam. Ma be la mikveh, what's the difference between a mine and a mikveh? A mikveh in a metar, ela a mikveh only is effective to make things tar, be'esh boiron, when the water is stagnant. Why? That's what mikveh means. Mikveh means you gathered water. So if the water is flowing, then it's not gathered. That's the very definition of a mikvah is gatheredness. To the contrary, and on the, con on the other hand, what is the definition of a mayon? Definition of a mayon is that it's flowing water. That's how it, flo it, it flowed forward from the underground source to where it is right now. So because the very definition of the mayon is flowing, so therefore it's kosher as a flowing thing. A mayon is kosher if it's flowing. A mikvah has to be stacked. Okay. So therefore, this makes a difference between uh, the, the uh, uh, situation. If water is flowing, it depends. Are you a mayon? It's okay if you're flowing. If you're a mikvah, you're not okay if it's flowing. So now, take a typical river. You take the typical river, and let's assume that this river comes from an underground source, and the river is flowing. No problem. It's a mayon. It's going to be kosher. What complicates things, however, is what happens if it's a mix? What happens if it's a mix? Why? Because if you have a river, and it's also raining, so on the one hand, it's a gathering of rainwater. That needs to be still. On the other hand... It's, there is a river here and it has some underground source. It's a mine. So how are we supposed to navigate if something is a mix of both? So that brings us to the Gemara in Shabbos, Tafsamachay, on the base, where it says as follows. The Amar Rav, the Amoira Rav said as follows. Mitra b'marava, the rain that occurs in the West. Remember, Rav is living where? In Iraq. Iraq does not get a lot of rainfall. The average rainfall, even today in Iraq, is considerably less than the rainfall in Eretz Yisrael, and definitely less than the rainfall in Syria. And so, the Mitra B'marava, the rain that happens west, which is much more than happens by us, Sadarabah, the great evidence for that rain, 
because we don't have that rain. We don't see the rain here because it's not raining by us. But the great evidence that rain is occurring further west in Syria and Eretz Yisrael, Paras. Paras, the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River, why? When we're able to see that the Euphrates River is growing, why is it growing? Why is it getting bigger? Why is it rushing quicker? All of these things are happening because of the rain that we don't see here that's happening further, that's happening further uh, west in Syria and in Eretz Yisrael. Why is Rav saying this? Why is Rav having this scientific discussion about the source of a river? Savar, so the Gemara explains, Rashi tells us the word Savar here means he was worried about the fact. He took into consideration for halachic purposes that what? The issue was that Rav was concerned that maybe you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have more noitfin. Noitfin means the droplets of rain. You're going to have more droplets of rain coming from above. On the naturally flowing spring water. In other words, you're going to have more rainwater than you have spring water. Now, what's the answer to our question? The answer to our question is what happens to a mix of both. According to Rav, the answer is you go by the majority. And Rav was very worried that there's an issue here that although he's living in Baghdad or in the area over there and there is no rainfall over there, so you say everything's good. No, 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 no. You see the river is growing here? Why is the river growing here? Because there's rain over there and so therefore we need to be chashish that uh, there's more rainwater than the spring water. And because there's more rainwater than the spring water, then you're not allowed to toivel in it while it's flowing. Rashi explains, when we're in the Nisan season, where the rivers grow, from the winter rains, from the melting of the snow, Rav is worried, that maybe you're going to have more rainwater than you're going to have spring water. And then it doesn't count as a mayon, and you can't go into this mikvah while it's moving. You have to somehow figure out how to get it to go still. And this is why Rav was talking about his situation. His river is growing, the rain that's happening further west. Okay, this is Rav Shita. Rav Shita is very clear. You're seeing a river that's growing. If there's reason to believe it comes from rain, you go from rain, and then you need to worry. That it could be there's more rain than flowing water, and then you're not allowed to use it as a mikvah if it's flowing. However, Rav was not the final word on the subject. You had another Amoiro, Fliga de Shmuel. Have Shmuel come along and say, nope, disagree, not worried whatsoever. I'm not worried whatsoever, the Amar Shmuel, because Shmuel says, Nahara, you want to know where the river's source is? Mikifi, Mikife Mivrach. Mivrach means it expands. The growth of the river comes from the rocks. Meaning the rocks, the underground source. Don't tell me rain. I don't care if rain here, rain there, rain anywhere. The one and oh, where the river is growing from its source. And therefore, it's a mayon because it's coming from the underground. And therefore, it's rushing. I don't care. You can use the mikvah. So in other words, Shmuel and Rav have a very serious disagreement here. Now, Toysa says, I have a very big problem with Shmuel. What does that mean? It comes from the rocks. We see very clearly any person with eye sees that it's raining. And then you see the river expands. Any person who is observing what happens sees that. So how is Shmuel going to address that? Shmuel is saying, no, I, I ignore the fact that it's rain is coming from underground. How do you deal with that? We see clearly that it comes from the rain, Toysa says. So what's the answer? We have to modify or explain Shmuel Shita. Because we have a teaching not said by Shmuel, said by someone else. Else in the Sechas Tainus, what does he say? That when it rains from above, if it rains one, uh, uh, one tafach of water, guess what? There's a response from below. There's a response from below, and where there's more output from the underwater springs. Whether that's because 
water when it rains also ends up in these subterranean aqueducts and, 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 and once it's there, it counts as underground water and then comes up. That would be one way of explaining it. Or maybe there's another way of explaining it. I don't know. But the bottom line is, Tosis says that this is the meaning of Shmuel. Shmuel says, I know it's raining, but I don't care because you're never going to be in a situation where you're going to have roiv. Why are you never going to be in a situation where you have roiv? Because the roiv is always going to be spring water because for every tefach that's coming from above, you're getting two tefachim from below, and so therefore, it's always a mayan and it's always kosher. Okay? Now we understand Shmuel, and then continues Toysus and says a very interesting statement. He says, this is the sheet of Rabbi, uh, uh, excuse me, Rabbi Nutam says, this is a big chiddush. Usually, we say, in the name of like Shmuel, and in, in, in Yonim of Isurim, including what's a kosher mikvah or not, the Allah is going to be like Rab. Rabbeinu Tam here drops a major chiddush that halacha here is like Shmuel. That's why we Jews living in the 1100s in France, we rely on this Lidpo, Benaharos, Afilu, in Godlumoid, even if they expanded very, very significantly. And even though it's raining, and so we see that it's due to the rain, and so it's flowing. Hey, you can't use it. It's not a minus, make shaman. Nonetheless, we say, yeah. For however much rain, you got more that's coming from below, and so therefore it's a kashara, it's a kashara mikvah. This is a very big kiddush Rabbeinu Tam. Number one, to paschal like Shmuel, and number two, to, 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 to speak about the fact that we kind of, or number one, to paschal like Shmuel, and Shmuel itself is a big kiddush, so to speak, to kind of ignore the rain and to postulate that you have these, this response from the, from the water underground, it, it's a very big deal. So you have some Paiskim who came along and said, well, Rabbeinu Tam is only talking about their, what we'd call, they come and they're Mitzamsim the Heter. What's Mitzamsim the Heter mean? They'll come along and they'll say, this is if you don't know. If you don't know, then we rely on this. But if you are pretty confident that there's more rainwater that came above than over the natural water that's here in the riverbed, then you're not going to rely on this Heter. So you have amongst Rishonim who are ready to this. Okay, but at the end of the day, all that's Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam is not the last word. Rabbeinu Tam told you that halacha is like Shmuel. Well, guess what? Let's look at the Rambam says. The Rambam says, Rambam says in Ilkhas Mikvois, if you have more rainwater coming from above over the natural river, then it's not a lot of flow. It doesn't work if it's flowing. And it has to be made to stand still. Therefore, what do you need to do? You need to bring in some sort of mats and some sort of boards. You have to basically create some sort of corner in this river. In that mixed river. Until you reach, you find a spot where the water is still. And then it works. So what happened here? Rambam discusses the issue of Rav and Shmuel. And very clearly he's passing it like Rav. Because he doesn't tell you, oh no, it's always good. You never have a problem. No, he says you do have a problem. If, and what does it go? It goes by majority. You estimate. If there's more rainwater than the natural spring water, then this is not kosher as a mayon anymore. Oh, so now we could understand with this background, let's come back to Egypt in 1549. And we could understand why rabbis and sages are discussing what the origin of the flooding of the Nile is. So let's read in the words of the Radvaz, number 16. The Radvaz says, asarti, I forbade Litbul to go to Mikveh Bikalij. Kalij is an Arabic word, and it means a canal, right? When the, because the Nile is, is, uh, is flooding, so you have the regular path of the Nile, and then you had all these little offshoots that were dug, that were created, 
that would become little channel ways for water to go very, very, very distant from the actual uh, Nile. These were called Kalish. And these went, and these were very accessible to people. And people say, you know what? I'm, I can go to Mikvah right here. They were probably next to people's homes as well. I could go to Mikvah right here in one of these canals, in one of these Kalijas. What is a Kaliji defines for us? There's no water there all year. However, when the river expands, the water goes in there. And it's not only there's water there, they're rushing. The water is rushing significantly. The there. And I also said, even in the actual Nile itself, any area where the water is uh, growing and expanding, where, why? Because he holds that it's rainwater. All this is rainwater. And so therefore, Kalij, it's all rainwater. Rainwater cannot be moving, and it is moving. The Nilus, this whole area where it expanded to, that also is all rainwater. You can't toivel over there. I answered it. And by the way, he's gonna, another big point is we're going to see soon. And it was never done, he's going to argue. It was never done in Egypt that people, that women use this for the mikveh. It didn't happen. Now, in our day, there's been a new breach in the standards. And now they're using this mikveh in any place in the Kalij. And in fact, the best and God edus of a case, just to show that, by the way, the water is flowing. Because you can say, what's the big deal? Maybe... They're doing it in a way where they're taka doing like the Rambam said, and they're getting the water to be still. No, because they received testimony about a case. She'echad, I guess there was a man who was there, who tafas as ishtay besairo, who had to hold on to his wife by her here, that the water shouldn't take her away. Why? Because it's a significant rush of water, and so this is happening. And so this, he says, is a major problem. Now, if you say, let's go back to the Gobar. If you say that Shmuel is right, then you don't have a problem. If you say Shmuel is right, you don't have a problem. One sec. Let's see why. Let's see why. So let's read number 17. If you want to follow the Psak of Shmuel, then you're allowed to toivel there. Why? Because what did Shmuel say? Shmuel said that for every much rain that's happening, you have more of an output from the under, underwater. So what is this, Kalij water? It's underground water. Underground water is, is kosher when it's flowing. So it's good when it's flowing. So what's the problem? Just rely on Rabbi Nutan. Who says to Paschal like Shmuel? No, doesn't work. We do not rely on this Rabbeinu Tam because the majority of the Poiskin that we care about, remember he's in the Sfar tradition, the, 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 the Poiskin, and he gives a long list of Poiskin. Mamish, a very long list of numerous names. No one thinks that you follow Rabbeinu Tam because no one thinks that you follow Shmuel because Halacha is like Rav when it comes to Yisurim. We saw the Rambam a moment ago ruling like Rav. Ela Karav. Why? Because they basically, without accepting Shmuel's position, they're accepting what's observable. And what's observable is that this added water comes from where? Comes from rain. If it comes from rain, then the second it's more rainwater than it is Mayan water, then you're not allowed to toivel in it when it's flowing. Okay? And that's generally. And that's why it was important to find out what's the deal with the Nilus. Where is this flow coming from? 
And that's why I did the scientific work. And that's why I did the investigation. And that's why we did the GVSA discussion. I wanted to find out. You had the, the discussion in general about all rivers of the world. That's Rav and Shmuel having that general discussion. But I want to actually know what's with the Nilus itself. Do we have information of the Nilus itself of where is this expansion coming from? Because we don't have rain here. Because if you had rain, you say, oh, it's rain, follow Rav. Because you see the rain. So it makes more sense to follow Rav and Shmuel's view is a little harder when there's rain. Like we see this rainwater, but we're not going to count it as rainwater because we're going to say that there's something else. But in Egypt, there is no rain. So in Egypt, there is no rain. Maybe that would tilt you a little bit in the direction to say, okay, maybe it's Takashmul, Maybe it's all underground. Maybe that's all that's happening over here. No. So I did the investigation and I found out that no, it also comes from rain. Narvaden, it comes from rain that's many, many, many miles to the south, but it doesn't change the fact that it's rain. And so therefore he says, Don't rely on Rabbeinu Tam. Besides for all the arguments, he then introduces the following. We are in the location, in the place of the Rambam. This is very interesting. He's writing in the mid-1500s. The Rambam passed away in the beginning of the 1200s. So we're dealing with 300 years later, but he's still saying, this is the Rambam Shtat. We can't just come here and just decide how we want to do things. But who's And he wrote what we saw before, that we paskin like Rav. Who has the gall to walk in to the Rambam Shtat, even 300 years later, and to say the Rambam was machmer, but we're going to be mekel, and you're dealing with the Isser Karis. Isser Nida is an Isser Karis, which means a very, very serious Isser. And so therefore, this is off the table. Now again, I mentioned a moment ago, I'll mention again, you could always speculate that with the Nile, is different. Maybe the Nile, you go more in the direction than saying it's all coming from underground. Why? Because again, we don't observe any rain. So even if for other rivers, you're going to say, oh, if I observe the rain, I'm following Rav. Makes no sense to say that there's a response from underground. Right? So you hear that. But in Egypt, you may not go in that direction. You may go in the other direction to say, I see no rain. So let me suggest that this river is different than it's coming from underground. And they wanted to say that. And, that, and, 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 uh, and he says, no, but clearly we see the Rambam didn't hold that way. Why? Because the Rambam wrote his book in Mitzrayim. He wrote Mishnah Torah in Mitzrayim. And if he believed the Nilos were different, he should have said something. Who kasav chiburib in Mitzrayim? Ve'im isa shenilos yoytzam echlal anaharis. If you want to say that the Nilos is an exception to the rule, umikifei mivrach, and it expands from the underground source, hayoloy loymar. He should have said so. Mitzaloy pirish, and because he didn't say so, mashma de'en chiluk, really that teaches us that according to the Rambam, there is no difference. Therefore, what's the bottom line according to the Razvaz? Ulafi shitazu. It is very clear. Hadavar barer she'ain litpol bikalish klal. There is no toiveling in these canals. Veloy benilus atma. You're not allowed to toivel in the nilus either because it's full of rainwater that is taking over and it's the, and, and it's the roiv and so you can't do it. Zulas. Those three months. What are the three months that you're allowed to? Next, number 21. Of Nisan, Ir, Sivan. Nisan, Ir, Sivan. Those are the three months when the Nile is at its lowest point, where there's no added water in the Nile. And that's when it's flowing, but that's fine. Because that we consider a Mayan. And so therefore you can go into the Nile River during those months and it could be do a mikveh, not a problem. However, from Tamil's time, which is when the rains in Ethiopia started. Now, for about four months, the river starts expanding. Tamos of Elul Tishrei. Yeah, 
and then the remaining five months of the year, it starts going down, but during those months you can't use it either, because when are you going to know when it's more rainwater or less rainwater, don't get involved in Sveikas, and you should not be using the mikvah during that time. Except, if you do a tikkun, that we'll talk about in a second. Look at number 23. If you want to be clear, what you do is you need to figure out how to make the water settle. So you can put up walls, you can put up some sort of barrier, or you can create some sort of like offshoot of a pit where the water is going to go into there. And the bottom line is, if you manage to do that and the water is still, then you're good to go and you can use it as a mikvah. But if the water is flowing, you cannot use it as a mikvah, except during those three months when we know for sure it has a din of a mayon, then you're good to go. While he was talking about this, he also mentioned another chash that he has. This is in number 22. The two, additionally, I just want to point out another problem, a separate problem. Because the river is flowing and it's flowing very, it's deep and flowing intensely. Even if she stands on some sort of step or platform. The Tachnis and bends her head in order to table. The water is going to drag her and take her away. Okay. I in fact checked this myself. The Radvaz says that he goes to mikveh in, in this place. I don't know if he means that he's done it multiple times. Why did he do it? It's not a kosher mikveh. So, so, okay, is it because he was a man or is it that he just did, maybe it wasn't for mamish ritual purpose. Maybe it was, maybe, maybe, he, just, maybe he just did it once. Maybe he just did it, but it's, the, the Lashon here is interesting. Anyway, I'm telling you, I saw the water carries you away. So what's the problem? Those women who don't know how to swim. How could you toivel in a mikvah in a place where it's dangerous? You're going to have to hold something. Holding something gets into a whole bunch of shyless about chatzitza. And so therefore there's another reason why he doesn't like the flowing water. He just thinks this is not a good idea. Even though in a mayom, which is kosher, that's fine. Whatever you want, you deal with it. But he's like, I'm adding this on as a second reason why don't toivel there. And if you're going to toivel there, do it in a way where you're making the water settle. So now we understand what was going on over here. The other people, they basically wanted to say like this. Don't say, follow Rabbeinu Tam. You follow Rabbeinu Tam. We basically say, no matter how much rainwater, you always have more output from below. Even if you don't want to follow Rabbeinu Tam, well, the Nilos is different. The Nilos is different because there is no rain over here. Let's therefore, and we have all those sources and evidence that seems to imply it's coming from the aqueducts that are underground right here. And so therefore, let's just assume that uh, this is different. It's not coming from rainwater. And therefore, you should be able to toivel in this situation. They tried justifying what the Radvaz called a new uh, minug that he thought was wrong-headed and that therefore he, he sought to come and correct. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the topic. That's the subject. Let's now link it to this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha, we learn... About Basparai. Learn about Basparai. What does it say about Basparai? <clears throat> By the way, the Sefer, the Torah and Sefer Shmois does not give her a name. Does not give her a name. However, in Divrei Ayomim, there is a Pasuk that says that there was a Parai, and there was a daughter to this Parai, whose name was Bisya. Bisya. That's the Nikud on the word over there. Bisya. Chazal say, that she is the same person as Bas Parai in Shemois. Well, if that's the case, some people have wondered. It would seem, 
when we're, when we're younger, we talk about Basia, the daughter of Para. And in fact, Basia is a very common uh, Jewish name. We don't hear Bisya. It's very common to refer to Bas Para as Basia. Is that a mistake? Are we basically mispronouncing the name? Chazal tell us to link the two. There, it says Bisya. So what's interesting is as follows. It's not the topic, but just a, a small parenthesis. There's a discussion about Gitin. We need to get the names right in a get. And it, the Tzemach Tzedek has four chuvas about the name Basya. Four different chuvas about the name Basya. Basically, the issue there is as follows. The Alter Rebbe did not like the idea of writing. There were women whose name was Basya. The Alter Rebbe did not want that in their Gitin it should say Beis Tov Yudhe. Why? Alter Rebbe reasoned that when you see that name, that name is Bisya. That's what you have in the Torah. In Divrei Yaman, it says Bisya. So that name is Bisya, but their name is Basya. And so therefore, the get name is not the same as their name. And the Al-Tarebbe was uh, concerned about this. Al-Tarebbe went further and said on one of the occasions that it could be that the name Basya, the Jewish women had in his day in the 1700s to 1800s, didn't even come from the Bisya name. It could be it came from the name Basheva. And it was some abbreviation of saying Basha. Some people were called Basha. Some people were called Basia. But these were all abbreviations of Basha. And that made the problem even worse. Because her name has nothing to do with the, uh, the Bisya and the Torah. And so the get sa- the Bisya and Divrayam. And the get says, Beis of Yudhe. And her name is something else. And therefore, Alter Rebbe was very concerned about this. What did Alter Rebbe suggest? That her get should say Basha. Beis Shin Aleph. This is a big Kiddush, even though her, all her life, everyone always called her Basia, but Alta Rebbe felt that this is the best solution for this problem. Okay, the Samach Sadr came along and said, we don't have to worry about it. He said that he has a tradition that Alta Rebbe later uh, changed his, his view and said that it's not necessary to do this and it is okay to, uh, it is okay to use the name, uh, to write it in the, in the get, to write, write the name Basia in the get for someone named Basia. Why? Samach Sadr said, it's very simple. When, when a woman's name is Basia, she signs her name all the time. There are documents all the time. There's all these ksubas all the time. And it always says, based off Yudhe. So that, that's just the name. The, today, it doesn't mean Bisya anymore. It means Basia. And so therefore, that's what it means. And so therefore, it's okay. And the get reflects the person's name 100%. You don't need to worry about it. But then the Samach said that goes further and says the following. In fact, I'll tell you even more than that. When you look at the name in Divrei Ayomim, it says Bisya. We, however, when we read Chumash, we say, and we tell, we teach the kids, we say Basia. So here we learned that right in the time of the Tamach Tzedah, we say Basia. Huh? Basia, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter. We say Basia. So, so the Tzedah says, why are we doing that? Is it wrong? Tzedah says it's not wrong. Why is it not wrong? Because there's a Medrash. The Medrash says, why is she called Basia? What's the meaning of the name, right? Some names in Lashon HaKadosh, they mean something. Why is she called uh, Basia? Says she's called Bisya because it's Malashin Bas Yudke, the daughter of Yudke. Ah, says the Samach Sadek. So, what was the meaning of her name? Her meaning, I know it legally is Bisya, but the real Nishama of her name is Baska. That's what Chazal tell us. So, therefore, that is her name. Her real name is that. And he goes, the only reason why they didn't call her that Mamish is because in, in Mitzrayim it's inappropriate to call someone by the daughter of God. You're in a land of idolatry. And so therefore, her name was Bisya, but really, 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 really her name was Basia, which is why we use that name and we call her Basia, which is why both al is concerned that the name uh, in Divrei Ayomim and the name Basia is two different names. No, it's actually one and the same, and so therefore it's not a problem. Anyway, that's a little bit of a parenthesis on the name. Okay. So back to this week's parsha. It says, Ateid Bas Paray, which now we'll call Basya, Lirchoitala Yor. 
Zakhti Gemara and Saita, she went down. This is when she finds the the Meishar Abenu in the Nile. She yarda lirchaytz megalule avia. Why is she going lirchaytz alayar? That's a little bit of an interesting thing. She had, I'm sure, she had a beautiful merchatz in the palace. So why did she come to the Ur? She came because she went to wash from the disgusting Avedizara of Pharaoh. Zok Rashi, to clarify, what does that mean? She went, she used the Nile as a mikveh. Okay, alarm bell should go off in your head. Use the Nile as a mikveh. Is it a kosher mikveh? It's flowing. Is it the Radvaz and Rebavram and all those issues? You don't have to worry about it. Why don't you have to worry about it? Because look what the Gemara in Saita says. said, When was the day that Moshe was discovered, which is the day that Basya went down to the river? was the 21st of Nisan. In a few years, when there's Yitzhiyah from Sarayim, there's going to be Az Yashir, that's going to be said by Moshe Rabbeinu, which is said on Shri Shal Pesach Chof Aleph Nisan, Yoke B'yamzes, he's going, to, he's going to suffer on this day, he's going, to be, he's going to be taken from us on this day, save him right away. And that's why Bas Parai comes. So this is that Shita. Another Shita says, It was the sixth of Sivan. The Malachim came and they said, he was going to receive the Torah. That person is going to be persecuted, suffer, whatever it is. On this day, he has to be saved. And so therefore he's saved. The second Shita makes more sense from Shulta Shomikra. Because the Torah, we have a tradition that he was born on Zion Adar. We don't want to mess with that. Count three months from Zion Adar. Nisan, Iyar, Sivan. So the second Shita works out perfectly well. It happened three months after his birth. The first shita is a little more difficult. The way Chazal explained it is that it was the Ibriyar. So therefore you had most of Adar Rishon, you had Adar Sheni, and most of Nisan. It wasn't a full month, but good enough. So the three months are in full months, and that's the Cheshvin of how it works. Either way, the earliest it is Nisan, the latest is Sivan. What are the Radvaz's three good months? Nisan, Iyar, and Sivan. The Radvaz's good months are Nisan, Iyar, and Sivan. So no problem, she avoided the whole Shaila Lechatchila. Okay, now let's conclude. And now let's conclude as follows. In this Chuva that Advaz, it's three Chuvas. In volume eight, it's Simen Kuf Lametes, Simen Kuf Mem, and Simen Kuf Mem Aleph. It goes on for a long, long, long. There's a lot of arguments back and forth and giving just a small synopsis of a much larger discussion. And there's a lot of subtopics that are very interesting that come up. I want to do one little thing. And that is, it was a discussion, is, well, is it the minic? Is it the minic to toivel in these, uh, in these uh, kalijas? Because if there is, so then we know a minic is sacrosanct. So let's look at what Radva said on that, two quotes on that subject. Zea minig asher amarta, this minig that you're talking about, Avram and Yitzchak, Rabbi Avram, these two chachamim that said this is the minig, ain't I clom, it's nothing, me come upon him. For numerous reasons, this is not a minig. Chada, number one, this is not made by pious people. This is not made by people who are of a high spiritual standing. It's just regular people. And when regular people do a minig, and it's not endorsed by the rabbis, and it's not made by tzaddikim, it's possible that it's a mistake, and that's what this is. If it's a minig that people started doing, why? Because there's no evidence of any rabbinic sanction or endorsement to this. The two, moreover, I want to say another thing. I grew up during the period of the Negidim and in their time. What he's saying here, 
I mentioned before that in Egypt you had this special office, the Rambam occupied it in his day, the Rambam's son in his day, and it stayed in the family for a few generations, of the Nugget. This is the prominent uh, person who represents the government, very often, usually, maybe, but at least very often, they were Talmid HaChachamim as well, authors, whatever it is. Uh, it's not the same as Reish Galusa, it's a similar concept, Reish Galusa was in Babylonia. This is in Mitzrayim. Now what happened was that in the government in Egypt changed. In 1517, there was an invasion of Egypt, and that's when the Ottomans took control. We know the Ottomans had control of Egypt for a while. That started in 1517 when they took it from the Mamluks or something like that. So now like this. He's, when they took over, they were Mavato the whole office. Then the Gidon weren't there anymore. He's writing now, this is 1450, 1440, 1549, 1550. So he's looking back and saying, I'm here, I can thank the Gutat before the Ottoman invasion. Now we're 30 years into it. I remember before the Ottoman invasion, when we still had the office in the Gidon. And you could sense here him saying, that's when Egyptian jury was good. That's when it was right. That's when things were working well. Before the Mohammed, right? How often do you hear that? That's what's happening. Before the Mohammed, before the invasion. And and I was there. I did not hear this, uh, this minig. In other words, it didn't exist. It's a new thing. It just started. And he calls him Atzlaniyos and built Tznois. Calls them lazy and he calls them immodest. The ain't a minig of cloud, and this is not something to rely on. So he's denying the fact that this is a real minig. Then he says in number 28 as follows: Even if this was an ancient minig, for example, you would say that this happened, and the chachamim saw and didn't say anything. Nonetheless, I would come and I will be mavatalit. And don't tell me, oh yeah, but how could you if other rabbis let it happen? And here he quotes a Gemara in Cholin, interesting Gemara. The Gemara says that Chizkiah, okay, there's a Pasuk that has Chizkiah coming along and getting rid of idols. Frek the Gemara, there were righteous kings before him. There was Asa, there was Yoishafat. They, they didn't get rid of these idols before. So the, so the Gemara says, that Chizkiah's attitude was, my father's my righteous father, they left something for me to do too. In other words, and so he says, and the Gemara says about Rebbe, said the same thing, just because in earlier generation they didn't make a macha, doesn't mean that's the last word. They left the space for me to come in my generation, and for me to make a say there over here. The Eloi Temahachi, if you don't say, and then he adds, and by the way, the Esher, maybe they didn't pay attention. Maybe they didn't know this whole thing that there's actually rain in Ethiopia. And he goes and says, if you're not going to say this, then basically no one can ever make a Chiddush. Because you're always going to say, if it's true, why didn't the other guy who came before you say it? But that's wrong. Completion? Perfection, that's only with God. And so we don't look back and say, oh, but that great rabbi didn't say anything, and so therefore it must be, this is right. These are just small two pieces of a much larger discussion about how do you know if it's a minig, is it a valid minig, when are you allowed to be mavatal a minig? And likewise, there are many sub-discussions uh, that happen here as well. And to just conclude uh, with an idea from Chassidus on the subject, what's the difference between mikvah and mayon? Both are water. Water represents Torah. So a mikvah is Torah and a mayon is Torah. Well, there's two attitudes, there's two ways of learning Torah. Mikvah is separate from its source. The source is the clouds, the rain above. And when you're going into a mikvah, it's separated from that. A mayon, by definition, every part of the water is connected to a previous part of the water that is connected all the way back to the original spring. So a spring represents connection, and mikvah represents separation. Again, both are in Torah. 
There's two ways of learning Torah. One in a way of connection that Rebbe explains in the Sikha, I believe it's Yud Kislev or Yud Shvat Toshin Yud Aleph. One way of learning Torah is in a way of connection, and one way of learning Torah is a way of separation. What does it mean to learn Torah in a way of connection? That's when I'm learning, and before I learn, and after I learn, and even while I'm learning, I sense that as much as it's interesting, as much as it's fascinating, as much as it's stimulating, and as much as it's an academic pursuit, at the end of the day, I'm connecting with Hashem. And so therefore that's a mayon, because you have the water, you have Torah, but it's connected to its source. Mikvah, it's also nice, it's also a good thing, learning Torah. However, it's, it's, it's in a posture, it's where a person's in a posture where he forget, it's forgetting about the source. This is where the experience itself is interesting, it's stimulating, it's fascinating, but the idea that I'm connected to the Noisanat Torah, the one who gave the Torah, that's something that we don't have. So what do we want to try to achieve? We want to try to achieve that we should taka have a Mayon, that we should, rather than having a Mikvah. Both are fine, but a Mayon is considerably better then a mikvah, we want to have that our Torah study should be in such a way we're actually able to sense the feeling that we connect with Hashem when we're engaged in.